The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borre, Part 2, The Rebirth. Metaphysics. Metaphysics is that part of philosophy that examines the composition of the universe and asks, what is the world, including us, made of? What is the ultimate substance? You might assume that this is more interesting to a physicist than a psychologist. Physics, in fact, gets its name from the Greek word physis, which means ultimate substance. But for psychology, one of the enduring problems is the relationship between the mind and the body. Is the mind, for example, just the activity of the brain, as many suppose? Or is it more than that? This is one of the issues that psychology has inherited from religion as well as from philosophy. We can just as well ask about the separate existence of the soul and its relationship to the mind and the body. Psyche, after all, is the Greek word for soul. For a variety of reasons, philosophers generally would like it if there were exactly one ultimate substance in the universe. This is an idea called monism. Call it a love of simplicity. But the problem is, if there is one monistic substance, which one? And there are two major competitors for the title, materialism and idealism. Materialism says that the universe is made entirely of matter. Matter, for philosophers, includes energy and anything in the physical sense. Some early Greek philosophers, for example, thought that the whole world, including us, was made of water. Others thought that it was fire. Others thought that the universe was composed of invisible particles, which were neither created nor destroyed, called atoms. Today, physicists and chemists and biologists and most psychologists have agreed on more complex explanations, which, nonetheless, boil down to physical reality. Now, please note that the words that I'm using here might have other meanings. So, the word materialism, as I'm using it here, does not refer to the love of material things. And the word idealism does not refer to living by high ideals. Idealism is the second competitor for the title of what is the ultimate substance of the universe. Idealism says that the universe is made of the spiritual or the mental, which is referred to as the idea or the ideal. Early Greeks also had a variety of ideas regarding what particular brand of ideal constituted the universe. Some would say that the entire world was nothing more than God's dream. Others saw it as a sort of life force. 
others saw it as the perfection behind the flawed world that we perceive. Modern idealist philosophers talk in terms of a world of persons or a world of qualities. Although it may seem to you that materialism is obviously the better answer, that is more a matter of culture than it is of philosophy. The majority of philosophers have been idealists, because idealism is a bit more reasonable than materialism. For instance, have you ever seen matter? If you look at a chair, for example, you see its shape, its colors, and if you touch it, you feel the resistance against your fingertips, its warmth or its coolness. You can tap it and hear sounds. You could smell it or lick it if you really wanted to. You could experience many mental events. But never, all by its lonesome, would you experience matter. But ideas, well, all you have to do is have a thought, and you experience ideas as self-evident. Both materialism and idealism are monistic explanations. Let's come back to monism in a little bit. The alternative to monism is called, logically enough, dualism. It is simply a matter of saying that there are, in fact, two different substances in this universe, the material and the ideal. Now, for psychology, this would be the idea that the mind or the spirit and the body are both equally real and that neither can be reduced to the other. Now, this sounds like an obvious solution to the dilemma, but there is a serious philosophical problem. If there are two different substances in the universe, how do those two substances interact? How does the soul, which is presumed to be without mass or extension, cause the body to act? How do the things that happen to the body somehow change from physical activities into a mental or idealistic thing. So if you think about it, it's easy to say that when we see a red apple, the light waves cause chemical reactions in the retinas of our eyes. These cause sensory neurons to fire, which causes neurotransmitters to sail across synapses, which send the neural signals deeper and deeper into the brain, the activity of which is the thing we call seeing the red apple. But no matter how much detail you provide, at no point do you convert all of this physical activity into the experience of an apple. Likewise, if I have a thought that says, I'm going to throw the apple at you, there's no question that there will be neural activity translated into muscular activity, translated into the flight of the apple. But when, where, how did that thought become a neural activity? And some people refer to this problem as the mind-body problem. Others call it the ghost in the machine. René Descartes, in addition to being the father of modern philosophy, also took time out to promote the idea of the reflex. In his day, hydraulic devices were all the rage fountains with moving characters, 
Descartes simply suggested that all living creatures are similar mechanisms. No different than we do today when we suggest that the brain is just a wet computer. But Descartes was also a devout Catholic. He believed that human beings have an immortal soul. How that soul influenced the body, or how the body influenced the soul, remained a mystery. Descartes thought that a certain gland in the brain, called the pineal gland or conarium, was the conduit that let in the animal spirits from our souls. And these animal spirits traveled through the nerves and made our muscles move. This, it turns out, was a bad guess. Descartes' type of dualism is called interactionism. There are two substances in the universe, the material and the spiritual, and those substances interact. But I don't know how. Now that explanation, of course, is less than satisfactory. So other philosophers put in their two cents. A French priest named Nicolas Malebranca suggested that God intervenes and makes us experience things when stuff happens to our bodies and makes our bodies move when we will it. Since these interactions occur in all of us every day, a million times a day, God must be very busy. But God is, well, God, so uh, clearly this is a possibility. This type of dualism is called occasionalism. Occasionalism, although it seems to take a very high view of God, raises some very serious theological problems. For instance, imagine that you've decided to rob an elderly grandmother and relieve her of her social security money at gunpoint. Or imagine that you've decided to molest a child. Are we to believe that God intervenes and moves your body to accomplish those very evil acts? And if so, doesn't that raise questions about the complicity of God in evil? Or question the morality of God? So another explanation was given by the German genius Leibniz. He suggested that rather than have God intercede a gazillion times a day, that God could have simply set the entire universe going in two coordinated paths, one material and one spiritual. In the same way that I can set two clocks, one antique pendulum clock and one electric digital clock. I set them to keep the same time, and even though they are completely different mechanisms and have no contact with each other, they always show exactly the same time. And so God could have done with the body and the mind. And this is called parallelism. Again, not a bad explanation. But philosophers and psychologists desire more certain knowledge than faith. So the search for an answer went on. Perhaps the most impressive of the Enlightenment answers came from the lens grinder, Benedict Spinoza. Spinoza's theory is called double aspectism. It is a monism that looks like a dualism. The mind and the body, Spinoza said, are two sides of one coin, 
which is the true ultimate substance of the universe. So if a brick hits you in the forehead, the physical things happening inside your head have another side to them, which is the pain that you experience. And the thought that you have to raise your hand to touch the bruise has another side to it, which is the physical act of doing so. Ah, problem solved. Uh, perhaps, but not quite. If you say that the entire universe has two sides to it, you have to include not only the mind and the brain. Spinoza believed that God is what we call the mental side of the universe, and nature is what we call the physical side of God. God is the mind of nature, and nature is God's body. And this is called pantheism. In Spinoza's day, it was called atheism, and it was grounds in many countries for a bonfire, with you as the guest of honor. But even if you like the idea of pantheism, keep in mind that it also implies panpsychism, that every physical thing has to have a mental side. So animals and plants have souls, but rocks have thoughts, albeit slow, simple thoughts. On the other hand, there can be no soul in heaven that is not attached to some kind of body. And these ideas are a little harder to take. Much later, William James, the father of American psychology and our best philosopher in his spare time, came up with neutral monism. He suggested that Spinoza was nearly right, but not quite. The physical is the one ultimate substance as seen from one perspective, and the mental or spiritual is that substance seen from another perspective. The ultimate substance is something else, something neutral. This means that it's quite all right to say that some things can be seen as only physical, and others are seen as only mental, and some can be seen as both. The problem that remains is the problem that we started out with. What is the ultimate substance? One recent suggestion is information. Now, this idea doesn't stray too far from materialism and is very popular with the artificial intelligence movement and the cognitivists in psychology. Another suggestion is more idealist and offers quality as the ultimate substance. Quality, sometimes having physical characteristics and sometimes mental ones. William James also came up with another idea called pluralism. Now, strictly speaking, of course, dualism is a pluralism. But James suggested that there were many more than two ultimate substances. There is matter, of course, and mind, but there's also math and logic. Are they physical or are they mental? Are they something else? And then there's time and space. What are they? Even the material can be divided into matter, energy, gravity, and so on. And the mental includes thoughts, perceptions, images, feelings, will, choice. Now, some of these things may interact. Matter and energy interact in the equation E equals mc squared. And other of these things may not interact with anything else. 
The problem is that now, instead of having two ultimate substances that we need to reconcile, we have hundreds. Perhaps the most popular metaphysics among researchers in psychology is called epiphenomenalism. This approach suggests that while materialism is clearly the way to go in the sciences, it is also undeniable that there is something real about our inner psychological life. So, say the epiphenomenalists, let's allow that there is something called the mind which we have yet to pin down. But let's also say that the mind is nothing more than a byproduct of the brain. Sort of like heat is a byproduct of an engine's operation. If we could design a perfect engine, all energy would translate into motion instead of heat. So if we completely understood the brain, we would no longer need the concept of mind. Now this is just a form of materialism, although a more humble form. So the problem remains. How does all of this relate to ordinary psychology, you might ask? Well, think about anything having to do with psychology. Love, anger, perception, mental illness, psychopharmacology. What is depression? Is it a perceptual problem or is it an emotional problem? Is it a matter of serotonin availability? Should we just use drugs to alter people with problems such as these? Or is it a matter of helping them to change their perspectives on life? If it's a combination of the two, how do we know how much of the problem is one and how much is the other? And is it the same for everyone? The mind-body problem does indeed remain right here at the heart of psychology. <laughs>